you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Once again, I just want to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me start by asking a question to you. I was really struggling to come up with the title for this, for this message that i like to share this morning. And uh, so finally, I came up with God is in control. But another title, if I want to give, is that when God looks weak. Have you ever felt that way in your life? God seems to be helpless. He's not helping me. God is not coming through when God seems weak. So, I know we have come to the very last hour of Jesus' journey on earth before his crucifixion. He's about to be betrayed and he was about to be arrested. The narrative we read today is leading to his betrayal by Judas and his imminent arrest. We didn't read verse 12 because that was for next um, next, uh, Sunday. But I just want us to start with this. Look at this verse. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Arrested Jesus and bound him. So this is actually an anticlimax by comparison. So let us understand the context here, so for us to get the subject matter. In the, in, the, in the 17th chapter, which we have been looking over the last few Sundays, we saw the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. He prayed for himself. He prayed for the disciples. Then he prayed for all the believers. Now as we come into the 18th chapter, we see Jesus entering into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, a place he had often met with them before. Now, let us understand this. Now, Judas comes with a detachment of troops to identify Jesus so that the others can arrest him. I just wanted to lay the the background here. And Jesus comes forward from what we have heard, asking them, whom are you seeking? And when they said, Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am he. I am the one you are looking for. And the moment he declared, I am he, when he identified himself, we heard the scripture. Everyone that came there, they, they drew back and they fell to the ground. And, and Jesus made an appeal to them. He says, not to arrest his disciples. Interestingly, the fellows who came to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ did not arrest the disciples. And now Peter got upset because something happening to his master. He thought, let me take control of the situation. He took the sword and he chopped the ear off one of these servants of the high priest. And so Jesus rebukes Peter for doing that. So this is the the scene we are looking at today. And I would like to approach by examining this text 
from four different perspectives to see what life lessons that we can take. First, let us examine what is depicted here, what is shown here, what do we see from this text. So you've got to come along with me. Let me see what is presented here. Apostle John records the arrest of our Lord Jesus Christ. Simple as that. So in the history of the world, when some key figure is arrested, you know, as I was preparing this, bear with me for saying this, I was thinking about Saddam Hussein. You know, you, you have heard, of, heard about him? Yes. And Muhammad Gaddafi. These were key figures in the political arena. And when they were arrested, they felt so helpless. They felt so weak, isn't it? These are the people who governed, who ruled. And all of a sudden, when they were arrested, you could see their weaknesses. So on the outlook, as you read John's narrative, for a reader, it portrays or depicts the helplessness of our Lord Jesus Christ or the weakness of our Lord. But if you recall, in this very gospel according to John, John portrays Jesus as, let me bring it up, as the word of God in chapter 1, as the son of man in chapter 2, as the divine teacher in chapter 3, as the great physician in chapter 5, as the bread of life in chapter 6, the light of the world in chapter 9, the good shepherd in chapter 10, the resurrection and the life in chapter 11, and the true wine in chapter 15, and the high priest in chapter 17. So this is John's record of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the very gospel, I'd like you to do it when you go home. Please do it as a research work. You will see that John has listed down seven important miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel. Starting with turning water into wine. And all the way to, uh, to, to, to bringing Lazarus back to life. It's very interesting as you read those things, you see that, ah, uh -uh, Jesus is not weak. Jesus is not weak. But all these miracles and, and the attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ seen in the gospel speak of his might, his power, and most importantly, his divinity. But as you read today's text, the very same Jesus appears to be what? Helpless. Appears to be, I'm using the word appears to be helpless. Not being able to defeat his foes, but submits himself to the schemes of the enemy. And he was being arrested, tried, and eventually executed. All the great claims that John has made about Jesus seems to pale into insignificance for the normal reader. If you are a normal reader, a, a, a history researcher, Jesus looks very weak. So from the outsider's perspective, Jesus seems too weak and seems too powerless. Look at Judas for a, for a moment, who has witnessed all the miracles that John mentioned, which was truly a display of Jesus' divinity and power, Despite, despite of all the claims, Jesus, Judas was still able to betray Jesus. 
And the arrest was successful, isn't it? So, so, so to Judas, at that very moment, Jesus must have looked weak. Look at, look at how about the disciples? They had come to place their trust in Jesus and in his power, but when they saw him being bound and taken away to them, at that moment of time, Jesus may have looked weak. Look at the soldiers. The soldiers who have seen power in battle and, and they have worked as instruments of Rome's power. They must have expected when they came to arrest Jesus, resistance. They came well prepared for that, but they did not encounter that. They were able to lay their hands on Jesus and take him away. So to them, Jesus must have looked weak. Church, listen. If Jesus is God in the flesh, that's what you see throughout the Gospel of John, then what does it imply? God looks weak. Are you with me? God looks weak. So let me ask you this question, church. How many times in your life you felt that God looked weak? I put both my hands up and say, yes, I, I, I felt that way. I felt that way. You know, church, come to think of it, the appearance of the weakness of God is actually not unique at all. We all have experienced it at some point in our lives. How about a believer in your own family who is sick, who is terminally ill? You're bombarding heaven with prayers. And he didn't make it through. person died. And you look at the scriptures, God is the maker of the body. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made. He is the one who gives life. He is the great physician. If that is so, if God can give health, then why is sickness and death everywhere? I feel that God is weak. When I heard, had that dreaded phone call from the UK about 35, 30 plus years ago that my dad died of a massive heart attack, I just said, God, where are you? Where are you? God looked weak. How about this? We know that God is a God of harmony, peace, beauty, and wholeness, isn't it? But why do we see today that relationships are broken? Cultures are broken. Races are broken. The natural world is broken and marred. And how many, how come many God-fearing people were forced to flee from their own homeland? Separated from their loved ones and seeking refuge and wandering as nomads. Looking for a country to settle down. How come, you know, I was reading in the history, how come on the, on the 7th of June in 1939, when the ship with 907 Jewish refugees was denied entry to Canada, and the ship returned to U Europe, and 254 passengers later perished in Holocaust. God looked weak. How about if God is a God who loves justice and injustice, how come? That the righteous suffers and the wicked are prospering. If God loves justice and hates oppression, how could these things be? Doesn't it look as if God is weak? How about 
us who trust in God and, and we all have those places in our lives where we want to be better. We have relational wounds within our families and we are praying for that. We have sins that we are not able to overcome. We see that our God is the architect of the families and God says he wants his people to be holy. We pray for relational harmony within our own homes but we are still living in a dysfunctional family. God is not coming through. We may ask the questions, why hasn't God done more already to change? Doesn't God look weak? Similarly, church, in this text, in the arrest of Jesus, which was a once in a redemptive history event, there is the appearance of God's weakness. Portrayed in this act, this is the first thing that I see. Appearance of God's weakness. Well, church, this is how one would see this narrative. And this is exactly what is depicted and portrayed in this text. But it leads me to the second question as to what is actually happening here. Is God really weak? If God, is God really weak? Let's examine the reality or the actual. Now, John has very intentionally made it clear that the reality is quite different. That the reality is quite, quite different. If you ever agreed with me on the first statement that I made is, does God look weak? If you feel that way, I want you to pay close attention to what I'm saying now. John goes out of his way in this text to make it clear that Jesus' arrest was not against his will. It was not against his will, but but that he went willingly. Not only that he went willingly, he was in control of the entire situation that happened in the at Garden of Gethsemane on that day. Come along with me. Now first we read, and we have studied that before in John chapter 13, that Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Remember that? He went through that. And look at verse number 2 now. And Judas who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Come along with me. So here in verse 2, we read that Jesus, Judas knew that Jesus frequented this garden they were in, but Jesus goes to that very garden of Gethsemane. If you know that you're going to be betrayed, and you don't exactly, you, you don't exactly where your betrayer would expect you to find unless you really want to be taken. This is not a display of weakness. Would you go to a place? You wouldn't. If you know very well that's where Judah is going to find me, you wouldn't. You go because that's a demonstration of his strength, not his weakness. Look at verse number three. Sorry. Then Judas, having received who? A detachment of troops. He didn't just go alone and see who else came with him. The officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with what? What did they come with? Lanterns, torches, and weapons. What do you see here? So Judas brought the whole jing bang there. And the soldiers brought torches on a full moon. And a clear night. Why is that? 
because they expected Jesus to run, to hide. You need the torches to go and look for him. But Jesus did not resist. What did Jesus do? Look at verse number four. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things, he knew everything that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? So he comes forward and speaks to them before they can even ask for him. They were not saying, where is Jesus of Nazareth? He knew. He went. He asked. This is not a display of weakness. Are you with me? Then again in verse 4, we see that Jesus knew exactly what to expect. Even so, he not only stayed, but he offered himself to the soldiers. That is not a display of weakness. Interestingly, look at verse number 8 here. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, hey, if this, you are looking for me, let these go, go their way. Who are these people? His disciples. You know, Jesus so boldly, he gives orders to the people who came to arrest him. Hey, take me. Leave my people out. And shockingly, the soldiers obey his orders. This is not a display of weakness. In many different ways, John is very clearly telling us that Jesus is in complete control of the situation. So this is a powerful lesson for us to take. We may appear to have been let down by God, but he's still in control of our lives. Because our ways are not his ways, says the Lord. The scripture tells us that God of the universe is in fact all-powerful. He has made the whole world good. But we marred it through our rebellion against him. You know, church, the scripture also tells us though he remains in control and he can make all things new, though he could do it right now if he wants to, but... He has his reasons for delaying it. But that reason is not his weakness. It's not his weakness. So we are assured of God's power today despite appearances of weakness. So church, our text tells us that though it appears that God is weak, in reality, God is in control. So you may ask the question, Pastor, how can we really know that? How do we really know that God is in control in my own life? And for that matter, how could Judas or the Jewish leaders or the soldiers or even their own followers like Peter really know that Jesus was in control at the moment of his arrest? And it was not just his weakness as he might have appeared. So that brings me to the third aspect of our passage, the revelation. What do we really take from this? What is actually being revealed in this text? We see that Jesus revealed his power and his control to all who cut, captured and gathered in that garden that night. Look at verse number five and six here. They answered him, 
Jesus asked the whom are you looking for? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, what? I am he. Can everybody say that, please? I am he. Very powerful. Very powerful. I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he has said to them, I am he, what happens? They drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus did not do anything. All he said was, I am he. I am he. And we see how Jesus is revealing his supremacy in these verses. In those verses, Jesus identifies himself as the one they are seeking. But as you read his response, there is, there is much more than to it. As he, as he uses the word, I am he, actually in Greek translation is called ego eimi, which can be translated as I am. Do you know what that I am means? Of course you do. When Moses asked the question, now when I go to relieve or ask for, ask for my people to be let, let go, when they ask who sent you, what, what do I say? I am sent you. I am. So this, the response I am carry a lot of theological meaning. Jesus identifying himself to the ones who came to arrest, looking for Jesus of Nazareth by saying, I am. You may be looking for the human form of the Lord Jesus Christ, but let me tell you, I am. I am. It implies that I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. That just that name itself has power. When Jesus said, Ego Emi, or I am he, see what happened to the hearers. As soon as they heard that, the soldiers draw back and fall down on the ground before him. That's what you see in verse number six as you look at this. You know, the same response, look at this church, that people have in the Old Testament. I, I, I picked up some examples. I just want to bring it up on the screen for you. In Genesis 17.3, records Abraham collapsed when God spoke to him. In Joshua 5, we see Joshua collapsed when he experienced the presence of God. In Ezekiel 1.28 and 3.23, Ezekiel collapsed when the glory of the Lord appeared to him. In Daniel 8.17 and 10.15, it states, Daniel collapsed on the ground when he encountered the glory of God. Nobody can stand in the presence of God. Nobody can stand in the presence of God. You know, that's exactly what Apostle Paul is saying, that in the future, in the Philippians book that you see that, that at the name of Jesus, what happens? Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. You may ridicule the name of Jesus today. There are people who use the name of Jesus in vain. It has become a kind of a sort of filthy way of saying it. But at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. 
Church, if your knee is not bending right now, it will happen at the name of Jesus. You might say, God is my arthritis that's not allowing me to bend. He will fix the arthritis so you can bend. You might say, it's my, 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 my stag, I can't speak well. He will give you proper speaking ability to say that you are my God. So what you see today in text is that Jesus' words display a supernatural power. And it's that power that drives the soldiers to the ground. Jesus displays divinity, dropping the entire group of Roman soldiers to the ground simply with the word of his power. Jesus revealed to those in the garden that he was in control. I am in charge. He is revealed to those in the garden that he had power beyond what they could imagine. He revealed to those in the garden that this armed group of soldiers was laughably weak before him. See, I mean, Jesus has not done anything. He said, I am. Wow. Picture this. Bring it to the theater of the mind and just enjoy that scene, church. I am. Kaput. Everybody's on. He made his power known to them. So we asked, Pastor, how does he make his power revealed to us right now today? In a number of ways, church. God has revealed his power in the creation. Look around at the size, the scope, and the majesty of this world. Look, look at the intricacies of the world. They testify that, that there is a ma maker. A maker of intelligence. Far beyond what we can imagine. That's a demonstration of his power. Psalm is right. In Psalm 19, for the heavens declare the glory of God. You don't need anything else, just look it up. Second, the re he revealed his power in the care for the church. Look at, think about the church, the very first church that met in, in, in Jerusalem. There were few people who gathered together to meet in one place. It expanded, went into Europe went into, came into the Americas. Now it's going into the Africa and Asia and the rest of the world. This is a demonstration of his power. Thirdly, we believers have seen power in our own lives. God has worked through us. How many of you can testify to God's power? Put your hands up in your life. Yes, all of you. That's why you're here in the sanctuary today. Not only he has shown you his power to you, but through you he has revealed his power to other people. And Paul writes, Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. And beyond all that, the word of God itself revealed God's power. His word to us written and preached is powerful, far beyond the power of mere human words. It changes lives. It remakes cultures. It transforms the world. It testifies to the power of God. So church, God may appear to us, appear weak to us at some times, but he has not left himself without a witness. He has revealed to us his power again and again and has made his sovereignty known to us. That is the revelation of God. 
That leads me to the last question. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to this? Excuse me. From this narrative, we have seen two groups or two types of people here. One, the soldiers. And the second is Peter. So let's look at the soldiers for a moment. How do they respond to the manifestation of, of Jesus' divinity? We read that in the name of Jesus, they were thrown to the ground. But the scripture says very clearly, they went about their own businesses. They acted as if it never happened. They proceeded with their work and they arrested him. Is that what we heard? Exactly. You know, John Calvin made a good observation. This is what he says. Listen carefully. Even senseless animals, if they are knocked to the ground, will have some kind of response to whatever did it to them. <laughs> Interesting. This is his observation. Even the senseless animals, you kick it, they will wonder why it happened. But Calvin further says the act of the soldiers should cause us to fear the potential hardness of heart we can have when we suppress the truth and become more dumb than brute beasts. Church, I'm sure the devil has urged them on, the, on to return to their business without pausing to consider what had been revealed to them. So one would ask, how could they do that after seeing this power? Don't you ask the question, after seeing Jesus proclaiming or declaring, I am he, and here the, all these soldiers and everybody was, was thrown to the ground, how can you get back and do something, go and arrest Jesus without stopping for a moment to realize the power of the Lord Jesus Christ? I would be freaking out if I was standing there. At least that is how we see it. But church, believe it or not, we do the same thing. Every one of us. We do the same thing. Examine our own lives. We catch a glimpse and majesty of God as we gaze at the creation. Then we go back to our own small selfish distractions and we forget about it. Secondly, we get a vision and the kind of justice and, and we know that God is a God of justice, a vengeance is mine, that is what he says. But then when the problem comes, we just take it upon ourselves. And we sinfully lash out at others in our own deeds of injustice. We read the scriptures, we hear the word being preached. We are struck in our hearts about the truth we hear. And the eternal significance of that, that applies to our lives, that calls us to repent. You come to church even today. Some of you may be convicted of the message, but just like the soldiers, a few hours later, before we could reach our homes as we are driving, we have mostly forgotten all about it. We can... Be all too like those soldiers. But the scripture calls us to something different. The scripture calls us to behold the revelation of God. The scripture calls us to remember the revelation of God. The scripture calls us to respond 
in faith and obedience to the revelation of God. And if you don't, church, the consequences can be dire. Imagine, just with the word, Jesus gives us just a glimpse of his power towards those who suppress the truth and oppose him. With the word, it drops the armed soldiers to the ground. I just want you to understand this, church. The soldiers did not perish at that very moment of time. They did not perish. This is the demonstration of his mercy. But when the day comes, what then will his power look like when he comes again in judgment, church? What will it be like for those who do not respond to his revelation? Church, we must admit and confess how we tend to suppress the revelation of Christ in our lives. We must repent. We must turn. We must engage with God's revelation to us. We must let it shape us in our lives. Let us not be like the soldiers, being diligently ignorant of the revelation of God. You know what, church? We know the truth. But then we become callous because we keep telling the lie, just like the soldiers. They knew at that time, we are not dealing with the criminal here. But they got up, they just erased the truth, and they went about their normal lives. Here we see the soldiers drew back, fell down, but were given a chance to get up. But yet they proceeded with their worldly act of sin. But when the Lord returns, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. There is no second chance at that time. There is no repentance at that time. It is too late. So today is the day. Today is the day, if you are like the soldiers. Then we have our friend Peter. Look at what Peter's response was here, verse number 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter's response to the situation by drawing out his sword, striking the high priest's servant and cutting off his ear, and you see that Jesus in turn rebukes Peter. That's what they're learning. But we learn in a different gospel or the gospel according to Luke, Jesus then heals the, that, that servant ear. But why would Peter do this? Church, Peter would not have done this if he really believed that Jesus was in control. If he truly believed in his heart, if he had the conviction, just Jesus is in control, he would never have done it. It was his lack of faith out of fear that made him to do what he did. So he tries to sinfully seize control of the situation. The fear characterizes Peter. And we have seen that even before. 
when he saw the Lord walking on the water. He said, God, if you can walk, let me walk as well. And the scriptures say he started walking. What made him fall? The fear. When he took his eyes off Jesus. And not just the fear of difficulty, but much deeper fear that God had lost control, that God was weak. I, he needs my help. God needs my help. You know, church, Peter has just witnessed the power of God's word. He just saw it. When he spoke, how many fell? Even more, Peter had seen countless miracles and, and which confirmed the power of Jesus. He spent hours and hours of, under Jesus' instruction and hearing how the power of God worked in the world. More than that, Peter had been told multiple times by Jesus that this arrest was going to happen and it was part of God's plan. And yet still, in that moment, Peter feared that God has lost control. And so he simply grasped the control himself and striking out in violence. Church, look at ourselves. We have been like Peter many times. We as Christians have received testimony upon testimony of God's power. We have been instructed in many ways. We have seen and been told how the Lord works through weakness, brokenness, and even strength to bring strength, even death, to bring strength, wholeness, and new life to us. We have heard in his word that as his people, we should expect trials and tribulations to come, and in that, by such trials, he is at work in our hearts. Yet when those trials come, when sickness or suffering or uncertainty or disappointment or injustice come our way, we often respond by fearing that God might have lost control and let me help him. And we begin to lash out to grasp control in sinful ways. At times when we feel God is weak, church, here's what I'm going to tell you. Our call instead is to trust our Lord. God, I don't understand what is happening in my life today. But I know that you are in control. Our call is to remember the power revealed in the scriptures, in creation, in history, and in the past experiences. That's why the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble, Psalm 46. In verse number 10, he says, be still. And what? Know that I am God. Sometimes we don't have the ability to be still. Let me help God. Let me help God. He says, no, you be still. Pause. Stop. Know that I'm God. Know that I'm in control. Our call is to have our fears eased by the knowledge and, the, and that the Lord is powerful and he is with us. Church, we can only do that if we truly understand why does God allow himself to appear weak? Why does he humble himself as he does in our text? Why does he delay in setting things right, tolerating the ongoing existence of those things that are set against him? It's a very important, pertinent question that we need to ask. Why is God doing it? And the answer is found in verse number 9. Look at this. 
that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Jesus did that, John says, so that he would lose none of those given to him. So Jesus' physical protection of the disciples here points to his greater eternal protection of them, a protection achieved by his willingness to be weak for their sake. If Jesus had not gone to the cross, you and I will not be, cannot be saved. We are who we are, who we are, who, who we are in Christ is because of what he did at the Garden of Gethsemane. So it was not his weakness. He had a purpose. He had to go to the cross to grant us eternal protection. For Jesus came to the garden that night so that he might undo the effects of a deed done in another, another garden centuries earlier. Which garden was that? The Garden of Eden. In that garden, the Garden of Eden, our first parents rebelled against God and bringing sin and death into the world. In this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would obey, bringing salvation and eternal life to the world. Where Adam was guilty, Jesus is innocent. Where Adam hid when God was looking for him, Jesus came forward. Who are you looking for? I am he. Where Adam was spared, the penalty of death due to him for his rebellion, Jesus, who had no, no wrong, accepted the death of the cross. Church, Jesus received what the first Adam deserved. He received what you and I deserve. So that those who have sinned in the pattern of Adam might, have, might find salvation in him. So the apparent weakness of God in the garden was in fact a display of the mercy of God. And the same is true today. The world is full of injustice, but God delays his judgment not out of weakness, but out of mercy. So that more may come to know him and be saved. All our lives have suffering, but God delays his ultimate healing, not out of weakness, but because by such suffering, he is making us more like him, working in our hearts out of love for our ultimate good. I've said this multiple times. I'll say it again. About nearly 40 plus years ago, I met with a near fatal accident and all my family members prayed, cried out to the Lord. Lord never restored me so that I could run and I could walk and I could do the things that I used to do. He delayed it. I thought that God was weak. I was young at that time. I looked at my mom and said, Mom, tell me one thing at the hospital. Why did God put me in your womb. Why was he, why did he bring me into this world to suffer like this? Because I was at the orthopedic surgeon and he looked at me and said, for the rest of your life, you'll not be able to run, you'll not be able to do this, that and the other. And I, and I wept. But today, 
after nearly 40 plus years, I thank the Lord. I'm standing here because of that accident. It's through that God revealed his control in my life. This assurance of his love must shape how we respond when we are suffering, when God appears to be weak. Let us not turn from him and suppress the truth as the soldiers do. Let us not lash out and run away in fear as Peter does. Let us not fear our circumstances, but let us trust in our Lord. He loves us. He will not lose even one of those who have placed their trust in him. Wow, what a powerful message that is, isn't it? That he will not lose even one place their trust in him. That's what he saw. Look at the passage. Church, if you have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today, he will not lose you. The world might lose you. The families might lose you. He will not lose you. He will not lose you. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God. And I just want to show, we're going to sing this song later on, but I just want to bring this passage up. Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and often failing. He my strength, my victory wins. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we see your strength in our weaknesses. But many times when you are weak, we look at you and say, oh God, you are weak. But thank you for revealing to us it is in our weakness that we see your strength. We thank you that on that day in the Garden of Gethsemane that you demonstrated your power through the apparent weakness by submitting yourself, by giving up, by going to that cruel cross of Calvary so that we are free today. I pray in Jesus' name that every person in this sanctuary would experience that freedom and they would place their trust in you. Help us in Jesus' name we pray.